Hi, my name is Yael and I'm a Buffy addict. But I'm not talking to you right now because I think that's a problem. Actually, it's quite the opposite. I, I think this show has brought a lot of joy and comfort and enlightenment to my life over the past 20 years. And um, turns out there's a, a few things I want to share with the world about that. So this is me, myself and Buffy. Alright, so the concept is super simple. I will be watching a Buffy episode, starting with the first one, and I'll take down notes and then I'll record myself talking about the stuff I wrote down with you guys. And I'll make it interesting? At least I'll try. Alright, here we go. Episode 1. Welcome to the Hellmouth. Welcome to the Hellmouth is the first part of the two-hour pilot of the show. It was written by Joss Whedon, the creator and showrunner of Buffy, and directed by Charles Martin Smith, who went on to direct absolutely no other episodes for the show, not even part two. It tells the story of 16-year-old Buffy Summers' first day in a new high school. She has just moved to Sunnydale, California from L.A. with her mother, hoping the trouble she got into in the past will not happen again. That trouble started when she found out her sacred calling as a vampire slayer. Because in each generation, a slayer is born. One girl in all the world, a chosen one, one born with the strength and skill to hunt vampires and the forces of darkness. Buffy is not thrilled with this calling, and when she finds out that the new British school librarian, Giles, has been sent to be her watcher and train her, she flat out refuses the job. Unfortunately for her, as Giles tells her, the sweet town of Sunnydale is actually a supercharged demon hotspot that is called a Hellmouth. Sure enough, an archaic old vampire called the Master is trying to basically come out and feast on the town, counting on his lieutenant Luke and follower Darla to help him. Trying to ignore the reality of her mission, Buffy manages to... Meet Cordelia, Willow, Xander, and Jesse, teenagers blissfully ignorant of the danger. That is until Jesse and Willow get seduced by vamps and Buffy and Xander have to run to their rescue. In the final moments of the episode, after easily discarding a vampire, Buffy is overpowered by Luke, who throws her in a tomb and lunges for her neck. To be continued. Yes, this was long, but it's a pilot to give me a break, and I didn't even mention Angel, because we'll do that in part two. There's something very special, but also very strange in watching a pilot from a show you know and love and have talked about for years and have yeah, I, I mean, I've discussed Buffy, I've wrote, I wrote about Buffy, I've hosted events about Buffy, um, and yet I'm rewatching this pilot, and I, there are parts of it I know so well that they have, don't, they don't really have any effect on me anymore. There's other parts which, where I cannot help but think, oh my God, it's so brilliant, oh my God. It's so important. Oh my God, that's so clever. And then I think, I really wonder what it would have been like to watch it first, which is not what happened to me. Um, 
I discovered the show in my country, France, on TV, in French. And then I think a few months in, I, I saw the last few of season one, and then I saw the beginning of season two, and then I bought videotapes which had six of the 12 episodes of season one. And that's how I saw the pilot first, which means I saw it in English first, which was a treat. I could not believe at the time how cool the lines were. I just, they were so clever. And it's funny because I couldn't tell how clever they were because my English was good. I was, I spoke, I spoke fluently, but it wasn't, my knowledge was still limited and I couldn't really tell that the show had so many made up words, made up expressions. I did not know that. I thought this is how people talked. There's a bunch of words in this episode that are sort of, some of them are almost made up. Some of them are expressions from the time. Like what's the stitch? Sitch? What's the sitch? Sorry, stitch. What's the sitch, which is what's the situation, which is used twice in this episode, one by Xander, one by Buffy. Um, yeah, that's just, to me, that was exotic. But I didn't understand that line. Like, I'm pretty sure that word I'd never understood at the time. But everything that was exotic about the show, I didn't know it was exotic to Americans as well. I couldn't tell that English speakers were discovering words and expressions in the show. To me, that was just the way English could be, you know, like stuff other people would say. But no, it was Buffy speak. Though I believe there is more Buffy speak later on. Anyway, so watching this show, the first thing, that, like I think about a lot of things. I think about all the stuff I don't like. But I want to start with the stuff I like. I want to talk about the joy of watching Buffy. Because there's 144 episodes in this show, so there's a lot of stuff I like more than the pilot. And for a long time in the beginning, I, tend, I tended to dismiss season one, which a lot of fans do. And I actually rediscovered it after a while and figured out that there were some pretty amazing things in those first episodes, some pretty... Well, big breakthroughs, really. And that's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about how incredible this character is. Because there, I mean, there's so many incredible things about the character of Buffy in this injustice pilot. First, this is a really smart idea that they had, well, Joss had, probably, which was not to ignore the movies that happened five years earlier, um, in which she finds out, Buffy finds out she's a slayer and she tries to save the school and she burns down the gym, blah. I mean, in the script, in the movie, it doesn't happen that way, but whatever. Point is, what's great about starting after that, the story, is that Buffy already knows she's a slayer. Buffy doesn't start naive. She doesn't start as a little girl who has no idea, she starts carrying the weight of the world on her shoulders. She knows what this is and she doesn't want it. But that makes her way more self-possessed. That gives her an edge, which I had never seen in a 16-year-old girl. 
and actually still pretty rare to see. And now nowadays, when you see it, it's usually with a much darker thing going on. And it's also partly defiance, like a teenager who thinks she's seen it all. But she, it's not that. She's just really trying to get her shit together. She's trying to survive. And to her, that means not disappointing her mother anymore. So anyway, the character of Buffy brings me joy. But also the way she looks at the world. The way she looks at the bad guys. The way she looks at Giles and all figures of authority. The way she looks at Willow is really nice too. She, she has this thing with Willow. It's like the whole time her... Like, she's being, the entire episode, she's sarcastic, she's defensive, she's, you know, in French you would say fiante, she sort of doesn't want to be faced with her responsibilities, but when she sees Willow, it's like suddenly she's there. She's not defensive anymore. She's just connecting. It's like she can feel that Willow has enough walls for the both of them. And she doesn't need to protect herself against Willow. And that's kind of really touching. The way she looks at her, I think that's really something that Sarah Michelle Geller brings to the role, is that there's a authenticity in her looks. It's really when she doesn't talk and look at people and things that I most admire Sarah Michelle Geller, because the, the, the words are hard enough to speak because of the Buffy speak and all this other stuff, but there's something really human and true and moving in the way she looks at the world. And, um, and even in the way she looks at the world when she's annoyed. Like, I think one of my favorite moments is when you see her with the dead body because this is something completely... Well, unusual. A 16-year-old girl goes to a locker room. She looks for a dead body, found the dead body, looks at it, and her reaction is, oh, great. And that's just priceless. And you can imagine on television in 97 what that must have been like to see that. And then there's her entire approach to her job. Where is Giles going on with this big sentences? And when he talks about her honing her skills, and she just like basically dismisses it all to talk about how she can spot a vampire because of his fashion choices. That's also very striking. All of this makes the show and the characters so special and different and empowering. And there's something really magical about it. And it, it feels... I'm saying those wonderful things in ways that are a little bit, um, I'm, I'm, I'm using very complimentary words because me and most fans are used to think of season one as a trashy season because it's kitschy, because it doesn't look as good, because it's wonky in many ways. Um, I'm going to go, I'm going to talk about that a while, for a while because Really, there's a lot of things happening in season one that feel that are not in my taste, to be quite honest. And I am always surprised when I, I concentrate and stop looking at the clothes I don't like and the score music that I really don't like. 
and the wonkiness of the ridiculousness, actually, of the monsters. And I suddenly look at it, and I'm like, oh, wait, you're really revolutionary. You're subversive. You're important. Now, Buffy's not the only character that I find striking in this pilot. Actually, the other character I find very striking in this pilot is Cordelia. I think Charisma Carpenter is excellent. I think she does an incredible job at giving soul and truth to a character that is clearly cartoonish. But somehow when she talks, her Cordelia feels, I don't know, real. Even though most of her lines, which are great, are sort of not just cartoonish. It's, it's, like, it's like banter. It's like old-timey 40s screwball comedy dialogue, which I love, as I said. But she just nails the tone. It's just like, ugh, it's wonderful. And I think she does not get enough credit for how good she is. Part of the joy of watching this pilot is also looking at all the things that are already there. So, yeah, Buffy the character and Cordelia, but also, like, the idea that the entire show is introduced by Darla. This character, who's a blonde vampire, who's we get introduced not knowing she's a vampire. She seems like the fearful little girl. It turns out to be the bad guy in the first scene. That's just, that's such a, a, a symbol of what the show will be. That's such a, that's sort of like a blueprint for the show in some ways, at least for the concept of the show, shall we say. But also, I find it incredible how easily they establish the vampire lore. They explain how vampires get made. They explain... They show us how vampires get killed. They explain to us what her duty is and what the Watcher is and what her past was. And it's incredible how they've managed in 42 minutes of action, because stuff happens all the time, to cram all this story. I found that very... Once again, I'm so used to thinking of thinking that this pilot as a little wonky, a little long, that I, I, I forget to see how wonderfully written it is and how smart it is and how clever it is. And it also is grounded in emotion. The defensiveness, the sarcasm of Buffy would not work if we did not understand it, if we didn't know why it was there. And there's really this exchange between her and Giles, which sort of is the subtext. It tells us what's at stake emotionally, what, why she acts the way she does, and why accepting being the slayer is a problem. Which is when Giles tells her that um, she tells him that she, if she know, he knows about vampire, he should slay them. And he says, "Well, I can't. I'm a watcher, and a, a slayer slays and a watcher." And she makes fun of him and says, "Watches." And then he says, "No, he trains her. He prepares her." And then she responds this. She says, "Prepares me for what? For getting kicked out of school, losing all my friends." having to spend all my time fighting for my life and never getting to tell anyone because it might endanger them. Go ahead, prepare me. It's funny because that's... On the one hand, it seems a little bit on the nose. It's a little bit... It's like it spells out what she's afraid of. And who does that? Who can't spell out what they're afraid of? 
But it works. It works because she sells it. It works because it's true. And it works because it, at that moment, Joss Whedon uses something he's been, he will be using a lot in the rest of his career, which is he undercuts the emotion with a joke. In the moment where he's just this close to being a little bit too sentimental, a little too on the nose, and hop, something happens. A joke. And that joke is that they leave the library and it turns out Xander is standing right there and he just goes, what? And at this point, I want to talk about Nicholas Brandon and how wonderful he is as Xander, which you can sort of see in this episode. No spoilers, but I guess we will be talking a lot more about that in the following episodes. But the what, to me, is perfect. I know, I think I've watched... I've seen this episode with many, many people over the years, and I can't really remember who, but I think one of the last times I saw it, someone complained about this, like, oh, of course he's right there. And I was like, well, yeah, that's called, you know, screenwriting. <laughs> this is how you make things happen. You decide that characters are as a specific, at a specific place. But yeah, um, Zender is very useful in this moment. And he also, it's, yeah. I don't want to talk about foreshadowing for now. I'll save that for the end of the podcast. But yeah, um, we also get introduced to the King of Pain, which is um, Angel. I'm talking about King of Pain because I really wanted to structure this episode thematically and start with the joy and then go to the pain. And then I'll go to the brain, because I was trying to go for a stupid joke. Anyway, the King of Pain angel get introduced pretty well. One scene, there's a very good line at the end. He's a little bit intense and ridiculous. I love the way Buffy also undercuts his ridiculousness when he says, I want to kill them. When she's like, what do you want? And he's like, well... Same as you. And she's like, okay, what do I want? And he's like, I want to kill them, kill them all. And she's like... Sorry, wrong answer. <laughs> like it's a game show. It's very funny. But then he um, gets to be funny too. With his last line, which is, I'm just a friend. And she's like, maybe I don't want a friend. And he's like, I didn't say I was yours. That's just really clever stuff. Um, of course, through his introduction, something else is established. He follows her in an alley and loses her. And then turns out she's... I don't even know how to say that, but she's on top of him and she kicks him in the neck. Um, and that's how, you know, Buffy doesn't get jumped in alleys because she's not that kind of a blonde girl, which is really the original concept of the show. What if the seemingly dumb blonde cheerleader walked into the alley and instead of getting killed by the monster, kicked his ass? So that's what they literally do in this episode. Of course, she doesn't know who the monster is going to be someone with the larger part in her life. It's really hard to talk about the episodes without talking about what happens after, but I really want to try. Of course, her impression of this person, who she, whose name she doesn't know yet, um, are made clear when she talks about him with Giles and insists she really didn't like him. Handsome, and she calls him handsome in a, an annoying sort of way, which is um, very cute. 
so yeah, that's I think that's most of the pain we see. We also get a little bit of Willow's unrequited love for Xander, which is a little bit heartbreaking, but not too much. A little bit heartbreaking too, because that's why she follows that douchebag vampire guy. And that's a little sad, but especially because Xander's reaction to Willow dating a guy or went leaving with a guy is to cheer for her. So I guess we already know this is doomed and sad. So that's for the pain. Let's talk about the brain for a little bit. So I've talked in the joy. I talked a lot about the brain. I talked about why, how smart the show was and how smartly written it is and how smart Buffy is. What I want to add to that is that the brain here really is shown through the dialogues, how clever everybody is. Everybody makes clever remarks. Um, I think my favorite is when Buffy comes back from trying to find the vampire who took Willow and um, instead attacked Cordelia. And she goes back to Giles' head, the vampire's dead, and she's like, no, he's not. And she's like, what? And she's like, no, but my social life is on the critical list. And um, I don't know, there's something very clever about that turn of phrase. And in general, everybody's really good at quipping. Obviously, one of your main characters is a librarian, and there are books everywhere, and they talk about the books, and you need the books. Yeah, I think it pretty much establishes that the show rewards smartness and cleverness. As I was thinking about the themes I wanted to address, after joy and pain and brain, I kind of wanted to talk about the revolution. And what I mean by that is that I believe popular culture helps us create new models of living and thinking and acting and all this stuff in ways that most, the rest of culture, um, well, they can, can contribute to certainly, but they can't, they can't have as big an effect. To me, they need each other. Popular culture creates sort of a normalcy of things that maybe emerge through other kinds of, you know, culture. Thoughts, philosophy, hard to understand art. Um, that's my way of trying to not make popular culture not art. <laughs> but there's still that kind of art that you have to th struggle to get to and understand and think about. And sometimes the things that come up, come up in these forms end up in cult popular culture. And that's how it goes to us. And so to me, how a TV show decides to portray, well, anything really, is incredibly important. Um, it doesn't mean it needs to be perfect or show how we should be, but it needs to be aware of what it's doing. And I feel Buffy is very much aware. I know there's some writings that have been going on for, oh, I don't think, about 10 years, maybe a little bit more, about how Buffy's not really feminist. Uh, I do not agree at all. I like to think of myself as a hardcore feminist, but um, I guess I'll be discussing it in many, many ways. But that first scene where 
He looks dangerous and stupid, and she looks scared, Darla and that boy. And then suddenly it turns out she's been tricking him the whole time, and she just wanted to eat him. That's pretty, that's pretty special, and that's a pretty strong statement. Of course, it also plays on, I guess, the cliche of the blonde as innocent. Not just the woman, but the blonde, because they were always women who were characterized as dangerous, but they were very rarely blonde, at least, I mean, in the original lore. Um, nowadays, it's a little bit different. And nowadays, Darla looks like a mean girl. So technically, she, we would think she probably could be a bitch. So therefore, it's not the same kind of shock now. Of course, it's way more complicated than that, and the show will be clever enough to... Ah, I keep wanting to talk about what happens next. But anyway, Darla will still be interesting later on. Um, but the revolution is also in the way that this is a teenage show about high school and none of her issues are the way it usually is in a TV show about high school. She doesn't have a crush on a boy in her class. She's not really worried about the popular girl. I mean, she, it's like when she's paying attention to her, it goes well and it starts, stops going well because she's not paying attention to you know, her, she's not failing at impressing her at this point, which is interesting. I guess maybe it also plays with this pink metaphor. Like she's not caring about the stuff the popular girl cares about. That's how she gets ostracized. I don't know. Point is, in 1997, high school for girls was just about boys. I mean, my so-called life, which was amazing, but still. I mean, it turns out it's also about friendship and about her parents and all this stuff, but what she's thinking about, how it starts, it's all about that boy. And Buffy's all about, damn it, I have to save people. <laughs> which is, it was a huge, important shift in popular culture. I, I like to think of um, Lois and Clark and Xena as precursors of the strong female characters that Buffy is. Um, but in Lois and Clark, of course, she was into Superman, but she was really, really into her journalism. Like, she really cared about her stories. And Zena, well, she doesn't care about men in general. She cares about her mission, but she's much older. So it's very different. She's had a life before. In Buffy, they're changing the paradigm. They're changing what a 16-year-old girl is supposed to care about. And that's just... Major. But no matter how much praise I want to pile upon this show, I do have to talk about this fifth section I made up called The Ridiculous. Um, we'll see if all the sections survive the other podcasts, but um, I like it so far. So, yeah, we have to talk about how ridiculous this thing is. Um, what I mean is, to me, who's not into B-movie horror, who's not into kitsch, that first season is still difficult to watch. A few years ago, maybe 10 years ago, 
I watched the episode on a projector. Was I, I made one of my friends fall in love with the show, which I have done many, many times. And she had a projector at home, and she had just fi- we had just finished the entire run of Buffy and Angel, rewa- an entire rewatch, and she wanted to rewatch season one. And I was like, okay, and she's like, I have a projector, let's watch it on on this a bit on the wall. And we did, and it clicked because suddenly it didn't look ridiculous anymore. Suddenly it looked like this was meant to look like this. Like this was an homage to some movie I might have seen in a movie theater in the 70s or something. At least that's what it looks to me. I mean, I don't, as I said, it's not my, like I love cinema and I have a lot of different kinds of cinema I like, but old horror films or 17 horror films, not, not my stuff at all. I'm pretty fearful, to be honest. I'm more like 40s comedies or like 60s. French films, stuff like that. Anyway, but I could tell on the projector that that weird thing I thought, which was, why would they shoot it like this? It looks terrible. Didn't work anymore. Like, it, it didn't feel that way anymore. And suddenly that, that score of season one, which I had such trouble with, it seemed appropriate. It's like suddenly I saw a different dimension. But to this day, when I watch it on the smallest screen on my computer, I, I'm like, I, it's like, I sort of disconnect. When there's stuff happening on the screens that don't have clever dialogue or any stuff with the bad guys in this episode, I just don't really care. I just can't really, also because I know it by heart, like, you, you have to understand, I've seen it a million times. But the other lines feel wonderful and these ones these moments just don't and it's it's funny because i think that's part of what makes a show great i have met many many buffy fans in my life i've been to events i've you know run into people there's always a buffy fan lurking somewhere and what i find most fascinating about us is that we disagree on so many things there's so many things that we think are great and other people think suck. And they're real fans, but they just don't see the same things in the show. And that's the strength of the show, to have all these different sides to it, which is also why I decided to call this podcast Me, Myself, and Buffy, because it's really about giving you my side of things, hope, hoping somehow that you might find it interesting. Or just maybe I'm just doing it for myself, like... A, myself psychoanalysis because we'll definitely get there like you'll definitely find out way too much about me and my life and my neurosis but um but i find that great that i don't like everything because it's not because i don't like it that i don't get it i don't i don't have an issue with a show being the way it is and there's some things, there are a few things that I am sort of dumbfounded at. Like, why would you ever do this or that or show this? Or why would she have to wear these pants? Or what's wrong with her hair? I have a lot of issues with um, Buffy's hair. But I think you can't, you know, question these things like that. 
it's way more interesting to realize why and to accept that it is the way it is than to say it should have been like this and that like that. So the ridiculousness of this first episode, I embrace it. I mostly feel it's um, evident in Luke. <laughs> I, I don't know who this actor is and what else he's done, but his intensity is sort of, I want to say it's mismatched, but it's not because it's a whole point. Like there's a, I have a whole theory about the archaism of season one and what, how it's about the bad guys being archaic and the good guys being modern. And anyway, so that just totally works. It's just, I love it in theory, but watching it, I have a hard time. Yeah, I have a real hard time. There's other stuff uh, being a little bit ridiculous. Um, like um, the visions in the beginning, her nightmares. I get why they did this because they had shot the entire season before they aired it. So they had all the stuff and they wanted to show that she had visions. But that just, I think the music doesn't help me. The score in that particular moment doesn't help me. But, um, you know, there's a couple of lines that don't really work for me. But that's, you know, not really about the catch. It's more about it's a pilot even though they had shot a pilot before, you know, it's still a first episode and you have to find your groove. But something people need to understand also when they think about the kitsch is that it's not kitsch. The show is not kitsch. The show is alternative. And actually what's, what shows the alternativeness is... Um, the bronze the music they play at the bronze and the way the people are that's very much 97 but it's not 97 like it does it's not filmed it doesn't look like bh90210 and if you think of bh90210 97 that's probably like i don't know seven season or something and that's not what it looks like it's it's grittier so it's not kitsch it's grittiness, it's edginess, it's weirdness. It's really, well, what people call camp. And, um, and the more I think about it that way, the more I like that it's there, no matter how distracted I get during the bad guys scene. Speaking of the bad guys and the archaism, I think I'll get more into it later because so far all we can see that they look completely ridiculous next to the rest of the show in the sense of they look out of place it's like a different world it's like a different thing and it's not really scary but i think that's also part of the point because he didn't want to i don't think joss wanted to make it so scary at first i think he thought it was more important to make it symbolic, which is why I've decided to make it my succession is symbolism. So yes, it's symbolic, um, it's symbolically scary and dangerous, and yet somehow really are because they're they picked up Willow and they got Jesse, and so the symbolic gets less funny. But the show deals in the symbolic in different ways. I think actually the first scene is the most symbolic of all. Th this high school where suddenly someone breaks in and 
it's sort of like violence getting into high school, the horror getting into high school. But it's also, it's also I, I read something somewhere, I think it was like in one of the Buffy versus philosophy books or like the Buffy versus philosophy book, maybe one of the essays, um, which was about the science wars, I think. And there was something about how the supernatural was breaking into the science lab and how part of the show was how mystic was breaking the rules of the natural. And I believe that's really profound. I truly believe in many ways the show I truly believe this matters and whether or not it was thought through or just was instinct like an instinct thing like just Joss wanted to write that down and didn't really know why we will be discussing this symbol later with different episodes this struggle between science and the supernatural this struggle between knowing and believing and fearing which is what I find so fascinating about this show is that this first episode with all its wonkiness and all its clever lines and all its cool teenage subversiveness lays the groundwork down for an incredibly layered subtext. And it's kind of fun to think about how much of it is thought through. How much of it is clear? And I, I know for a fact, because I've been studying this show my entire adult life, I know for a fact that it's not that thought through. I mean, it is, but it isn't. And we'll, we'll keep talking about it because that's part of what makes it so special. But before I talk about this episode in terms of what happens next, I want to talk a little bit about my favorite lines. Well, there's so too many to to quote all. Also, I won't be as funny as the characters who said them, so I don't want to ruin them all for you. But um, I kind of want to tell you a few. Um, okay, funnily enough, I love the way Buffy, the first time she meets Giles, and she's like, I wasn't looking for that, because he has this big vampire book for her. And he's like, are you sure? And she says, I'm way sure. I don't know why, but that line, I just think it's... I don't know. I think it's a strong one. Um, I really, really, really like, as I said, the Cordelia thing. Um, I love when she talks about the extremely dead guy in the locker. Dead? Totally dead. Way dead. So not just a little dead then. That's Xander. To which she responds, don't you have an elsewhere to be? Which um, is a great line, which apparently I think I remember from a commentary, audio commentary I saw millions of years ago. Just said this to someone in high school. Um, I love morbid but much. I didn't ask. Uh, which I also love. What is your childhood trauma? This is all Cordelia Alliance. 
But I also love when Buffy goes back to the library after seeing the dead guy and tells it to Giles. And and she's like, isn't that bizarre? Aren't you going, ooh? (laughs) Yeah, that's great. Um, G, can you fake that up for me? I've been using that line forever because it's just good. People don't get it because not everybody knows Buffy by heart the way I do, but they should. I really like when she's explaining the vampire stuff about it being a big sucking thing of them sucking your blood and you sucking their blood and then she just deadpans. Mostly they're just going to kill you. There's something incredibly powerful and tragic about that line. I love the way Willow says, it worked at some British museum or the British museum, I'm not sure. That just kills me. It's so simple, but that kills me. And it's kind of stupid, but when Luke says, you're strong, I'm stronger, it makes me laugh every time. But just the whole general spiel Buffy gives to the vampires at the end when she goes into this whole, like, it's like she's doing a stand-up comedy routine. And I love when she just goes, you couldn't suck some other town. You couldn't go you couldn't go suck on some other town. That just slays me, really. Alright, so that's what I have to say about this episode. Um I want to say more, but this part I want to only give to the people who've seen the rest of the show. So if you haven't seen, if for some reason you've decided to start watching Buffy for the first time and decided to listen to my podcast, which Okay, um, stop listening now. You can listen to the rest once you've seen the rest of the show. So when you're rewatching the show for the second time. All right, it's just us now. So what I wanted to say was I find it incredibly wonderful that that little line on the nose line about being prepared and like, oh, are you going to prepare me for getting kicked out of high school and losing one of my friends and all the stuff she says? That's true. That's how she's going to feel for the rest of the show. The thing about, like, of course she's going to tell her friends. But then... She won't tell them everything, and she will get kicked out of school, and she will at some point lose them, and she will get them back. But if you think about even season seven, you really see that what she thinks is her fate and what's terrible about her fate is really real. It's not an illusion. It's not not like this thing where she's afraid of something that's not actually that scary that's not going to happen to her because a lot of our fears are stuff we made up in our minds but she's right on the money and I found out to be actually it could be tragic but I don't think it is because this show does not deal in tragedy it seems to be dealing in tragedy because a lot of horrible things happen to all of the characters but it really deals in aspiration and in it really is a recipe to live a good life, I feel. 
it has helped me live a good life. And in, you know, accepting that fate, accepting what is tragic about that fate, in some way, it also means you can build on it. If you accept the bad, then you can add the good. If you keep the bad at shore, you're so busy keeping it at shore that you can't do anything else. So that's what inspires me about that moment. I also feel that in some ways it's really, it, it's bookended by the end of season one when she accepts to die, which like, that's not a breakthrough. Everybody who's seen the show knows that. But still, the way Buffy fans take for granted how completed and how thought through and how satisfying um, the show is, the way it bookends everything, the way everything gets started, the arcs get started and in a nuanced way and then get developed and then end up somewhere different and yet everywhere, like exactly where we thought it would end. That's something that does not exist with other shows. It's actually pretty rare. We really don't get to have this much closure with other shows. I also like that we, the first time we meet Cordelia, she's nice, which sort of is actually foreshadowing that she'll end up being nice. It's also something about Lin-Manuel Miranda said in Hamilton, Hamilton meets Burr before the rest of his friends as sort of a homage to Harry Potter because he meets Draco before the rest of his friends. Well, Buffy meets Cordelia before she meets Xander and Willow. I'm just saying, everything is connected. So that's interesting. There's a million things in this episode that I haven't talked about that get that are foreshadowing things and that are, sh you know. But I feel I've talked too much already. Another important thing in the show is music, and I don't mean the score, because as I've mentioned, I do not like the score of season one, but the soundtrack, there are songs that are very, way more relevant to the plot and the themes of the show than people think or would notice. And um, I do not enjoy the music of season one as much as I enjoy the music of other seasons. It's very, I mean, it's very well researched is that's the kind of music that they were playing at the time in that part of the country but i'm not super into it but i do love some tracks and um so i thought i would pick for every episode a song and the song i'm going to pick for episode one is uh, a song called no heroes it's a song by dave aragon at least that's what i have on my listing and um it plays when Buffy first gets to the high school, uh, when her mom says, don't get kicked out. Another great line from the show. I picked this song because I remember looking up the lyrics and realizing that even though you could barely hear it or you could totally hear it without paying attention to the lyrics, what it said was very, well, relevant. The, the chorus is something like, we are the anti-heroes living in society. Anti-heroes. And <laughs> in many ways, I feel these characters are anti-heroes. Not in the sense that they are bad guys. But in the sense that they are not the kind of people that would have been seen as heroic in traditional fiction.
Buffy's not supposed to kill the bad guys. Xander is not supposed to be cool. Neither is Willow. They are anti-heroes. So, yeah. Music is cool. This is my first episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope someone listened. Please, if either of the things are true, tell me about it. I will keep on doing this probably for years because, hello, 144 episodes, 110 of Angel. Probably going to do both. Um, and I hope you enjoy the ride. If you want to follow this podcast, there's an Instagram account, me, myself, and Buffy in one word. There's a Twitter account, me underscore myself underscore Buffy. There's also a website, of course, www.buffy.icannotsitstill, all spelled out, dot com. There's not much there yet, but there will be. The music that was used at the beginning and the end of this podcast is called Distant Memory. It was composed by Tomasz Krostowski and it's from the website hooksounds.com. Um, yeah, I'm still a Buffy addict, and this was me, myself, and Buffy. Bye.